This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. So, I don't know if you remember the first lecture in this course. We talked about theories of knowledge. How, we know what we, how do we know what we think we know? And we reviewed them each week, so I don't think they'll be a surprise to you. So I'm not going to take the time necessarily right now to visit, revisit each one. Uh, I'll just list them. Uh, for those of you who may not have been in our first lecture or maybe you've not been listening, uh, I'll just relist them, revisit them here for a second. We looked at three secular theories of knowledge, and then I added a fourth and what I believe to be biblical theory of knowledge. The three secular theories were rationalism, empiricism, and fideism. And of course, then I added that we know what we know that has been given to us by divine revelation. So we had rationalism, we, either, we know either by innate knowledge, we have empiricism through experience, or we simply have blind faith, that was fideism. However, I pose that we actually do have divine revelation, which can be trusted because it is divine. And we actually, though you may not have recognized it at the time, uh, forgive me if I wasn't clear in my teaching, but we actually, we extracted uh, the good from those three secular theories to formulate a biblical understanding of knowledge. And here's what we had done, if you recall, we, re- we said that divine revelation can be rational. And we shouldn't be scared of that term rational. Remember, remember what I said is when it becomes an ism is when we should be wary of it. But it's good to be rational. And what does rational mean? To be able to think. Okay, so it's good. It's good. Uh, it's good to be rational. So we said that divine revelation can be rational. It, it, It may challenge you, but think of it this way. A God who is all-knowing, it can't be just random with him. Now, you may not understand it in its entirety, but that's really not up for you. So it can be rational. It can be experienced. You can experience divine revelation. In fact, isn't that what Psalm tells us? It says, the heavens, what? They declare the glory of God. How do you experience that? You see. You see it. So it can be experienced, and because it's rational, it's reasonable, and it's experiential, you can then have faith. It's faith-creating. In essence, we took the isms out of all those things, out of rationalism, out of empiricism and fideism, and found that the Bible, which is what we call divine revelation, does teach us that we can know things through rational, experiential faith. So this evening... We're going to tell a story. This is, this is going to be a narrative tonight. So if you like stories, this is for you. And this is going to be a historical, a history lesson. I love history. And some of you probably, I was talking to some, you don't, you don't have the appreciation for history that you probably should have. I've had boring history teachers. I've had exciting history teachers. I had, I've read history books where none of what I lived was in that book. Now I'm reading history books 
and I'm about five chapters from the end now of what I've actually lived through. Some of you will move on. <laughs> history is good. We're going to look at a history story tonight, and we're going to consider more of a historical timeline of how we have developed in our history of Western civilization. Now, how we've developed in Western civilization, that's probably way too broad for us this evening. So I'm going to narrow it down. I mean, really narrow it down to how we have developed thought in the United States and how we have developed our way of thinking here and now in the 21st century. How are we approaching things in the 21st century? And when I say we, I'm really talking this generic collective American we. I'm talking about our nation. It, it's really broad. And more specifically than how American Christianity thinks in the 21st century. So there's many, if we're going to narrow down, there's really, there's a lot of places we could start. As Maria Von, uh, taught those Von Trapp children in that classic musical Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. And that would be truly exciting to trace the application of theories of knowledge to Western thought from the very beginning, but uh, time is not on our side this evening. So I will then take Inigo Montoya, who said to Wesley in the epic movie Princess Bride, let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. And that's where we'll be this evening. This is just my opinion, but I think the best place to interject ourselves into the history of American thought is going to go back, take us back to the beginning of the 20th century. For the next few minutes, we are going to take a very broad look at the 20th century of civilization which I think was anything but civilized. Even though the 20th century produced perhaps some of the greatest advances in technology. Now, I'm going to oversimplify things over the next few minutes, and I'm going to leave out some major events that you probably think are very important, and I may even elevate others that you say, I don't know if that's as important as you said it is. But I think you will get a good perspective by the time we're done of how the 20th century wreaked havoc on Western civilization and how the American church, I think, failed. And that's a strong statement. We're going to see how the American church was actually complicit in the degradation of our society in the 20th century. Because of this complicity, the church, and I, and I am just kind of opining here, the church has lost its relevance in America. It was in the 20th century that the American church lost its way. Now, there were certainly some highlights, even bright spots in the darkness. Some of the mainline denominations refused to capitulate to liberal theology, which we're going to define shortly forcing many of our, those mainline denominations to split. And they split into conservative and liberal factions. For example, in 1973, the Presbyterian Church split, and the PCA separated from the Presbyterian Church USA, or the PCUSA, over the Presbyterian Church's liberal theology. So now you do have a fairly conservative Presbyterian church, which is called the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, very Calvinistic, but relatively conservative in its theology, as opposed to a very liberal PCUSA. 
1988, the Lutherans split into the liberal evangelical church in America, while the more conservative Lutherans stayed in the theologically conservative Missouri Lutheran Synod. So there you have another one. You have the liberal Lutherans in the ELCA, and you have the conservative Synod Lutherans. In protest to the Southern Baptist resurgence in conservative theology, the cooperative Baptists here in the state of Virginia split from the Southern Baptist Convention because they said the Southern Baptists were too conservative. And so you have the cooperative Baptist. And more recently, the Episcopal Church has split into the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church in North America, primarily over how the church has handled same-sex marriage and the ordination of women. The former, the Episcopal Church, is the liberal faction, and the latter, the Anglican Church now, what's called the Anglican Church in North America, are seeking to return to a conservative theology. The United Methodists are right in the middle as we speak, trying to figure out what they want to do. Going through an upheaval as they figure out the viability of a liberal and conservative theologies coexisting under the same umbrella, under the uh, United Methodist Conference. So there were some bright spots, and maybe some more that are closer to us, some that are probably more familiar to us, was in the 20th century, the Christian school movement. International missions, you look around our church, there were churches who were still sending missionaries out. And strict commitment to the fundamentals of the faith, these were all very good things in the 20th century. But I think they were also kind of forced on us because of society and what was going on. They were reactionary. Little proaction on our part. And many times as we sent missionaries or as we formed Christian schools, both under uh, secondary and then also college Christian schools, we taught our students to not really engage with the culture, just isolate from it. Which I think, as in hindsight, maybe wasn't the best. So in the end, we now have a church that's in tumult. So I ask, and I will use Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus to pose my question this evening. How, do we become, how did we become a church that is reacting to the culture around us? How do we now henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro? and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay in wait to deceive. We are tossed to and fro. Paul uses that term, that phrase, tossed to and fro. And it's fascinating to me. Sometimes I think we think of ourselves as a church, as looking at the culture around us, and it's as if we are watching a ping-pong match. And we kind of just gauge the culture, and we see where this is going and that's going. Our heads move back and forth as we watch the ball go back and forth. What's Congress going to do? Those liberals, the conservatives. And we just think of ourselves as bystanders. That's not what Paul's saying here. We aren't spectators watching the match. We're the ping pong ball going back and forth. We're getting shaken. 
We're getting battered as we get beat back and forth, to and fro. Going literally with every wind of doctrine. I'm reminded of my life at sea. I had one. Uh, my ship now is in the yards. Um, there's a truly surreal experience when you're on an aircraft carrier. That was the carrier I was assigned to, the John C. Stennis. And this picture, if you know anything about what's going on in this picture, it is doing sea trials where it goes up to full speed and it just turns. Now, everybody says, you know, how fast does an aircraft carrier go and we can't talk about it because it's classified. The real truth is those of us like chaplains say that because we have no idea. Uh, uh, it just goes fast. I've been on it. I've been on, a sh on the carrier when we've gone from San Diego up to, Port up to Bremerton, Washington in just days. Moving right along. When you want to get home, when sailors want to get home, they're going to get home. All right? <laughs> and we're flying through off of the coast of Oregon. And, I mean, the, and the waves and you're rocking. But when you do this turn, they'll say something like this. Any kind of weather or something, they'll say, stand by. For heavy rolls. You're supposed to make sure that everything is secured for sea. And I remember sleeping one night and just hearing, I was right below the wardroom galley, and I think they literally took these stinking CSs, which are culinary specialists, I think they took all the heavy cans of peaches and just kind of propped them on the edge of the counter, uh, so that when we hit heavy seas, it would just wake every officer up, because these cans of peaches would just come flying over. And I remember just the shaking and the loudness. I was on a destroyer when we hit heavy seas up off of north of Scotland. And, uh, and I, my, my, my rack was right next to the bulkhead and the captain was on the other side. And I remember in the middle of the night just hearing this popping sound as we hit a wave. And I hear the captain get on the phone up to the bridge and say, all I hear was a deep voice, what happened? <laughs> we had cracked our mast on a destroyer. The waves, the sea is unforgiving. And when you're out at sea, it doesn't matter if you're on a destroyer that's not very big with only 300 sailors or you're on an aircraft carrier like the John C. Stennis where you got 5,000. You are at the mercy of the sea. And you go back and forth with whatever the sea says it's going to do with you. You're tossed to and fro. You don't get a say. You're just along for the ride. And I feel like our churches in the 20th century have just been along for the ride. We get battered, going, getting beat back and forth, to and fro, until we have today what I think we've created in our American churches is this bifurcated existence. And what do I mean by that? Where we read the Bible in our churches, but we don't understand it. We preach it, but we actually don't know how to live it. And we are at a time where we do not endure sound doctrine, but after our own lust, we heap to ourselves teachers having itching ears, telling us what makes us feel better. So, the 21st century, 
or the 20th century America, though, was perhaps, if we want to go back and start our story, perhaps the most defining century in the short history of our young nation. The, let's talk, though, before we get to the 20th, the 18th and 19th century. They were certainly formative. We established our independence. We worked out how we are going to govern ourselves as well as who has the right to be governed as an American. We remained fairly isolated as a nation and inward in our focus. This inward focus enabled us to pay very close attention to our own industrial revolution. The nation was fundamentally, by design, capitalistic. The Protestant work ethic was woven into the fabric of our society. The United States was not distracted by international politics. We were a fledgling nation just trying to get along. We were just trying to survive. The result, though, was a nation that developed a very strong middle class. Hard work was rewarded. Ingenuity was encouraged and enabled. The church in America benefited from this laissez-faire society. The isolated nation allowed for a fairly isolated church. And just like the United States was exporting much of its industrial ingenuity, it was also exporting its religious fervor. Foreign missions reached its apex in the 19th century America. So much of American culture was going out, but we weren't bringing much in. And that was good. Sure, the United States had its issues in the 18th and 19th century. Policy toward the American Indians was heavily pragmatic and thus not very moral at times. Racism was embedded in the American psyche as displayed by slavery and the failed reconstruction policies of the South. Even capitalism had its warts. Unfettered greed resulted in the exploitation of child labor and labor in general. But all of these are examples, I don't think, of a failed American experiment, but rather of really that this was an experiment, and we were trying to get things right. And it really was rather what happens when humanity is involved in that experiment. We're going to get it wrong 10 times out of 10. These warts in American story were approbations. They were, I think they were outliers. And though many had real and enduring consequences, these dark spots of slavery and, uh, and child labor were not definitive of our history. We worked a lot of those things out in the 18th and 19th century. How did we work things out? I think a great example of this would be how the United States handled westward expansion. You know, there was a reason why it was called the Wild Wild West. This was not because it was just a harsh environment full of wild animals and austere conditions. As frontier, frontier towns were built, rule of law took a little while to catch up there. But what paved the way for rule of law was first a rule of morality. Why do I say that? Perhaps this gentleman... Alexis de Tocqueville captured this best in his book, Democracy in America. This classic provides unique insights into what made America such a rapid success. De Tocqueville was a Frenchman who came to the United States and explored and looked at it and said, I want to see what makes America work. 
And he believed clearly through his writings that what made America work was Christianity. One of his observations describes what he saw as the American settlers spread across the continent. In 1885, he wrote, I have known of societies formed by Americans to send out ministers of the gospel into the new western states to found schools and churches there, lest religion should be allowed to die away in those remote settlements, and the rising states be less fitted to enjoy free institutions than the people from, when to, from whom they came. I met with wealthy New Englanders who abandoned the country in which they were born in order to lay the foundations of Christianity and of freedom on the banks of the Missouri or in the prairies of Illinois. This was deeply embedded into our society. In fact, if you'll recall, the first law that was ever passed, it wasn't the United States at the time, but in the 1600s, the Puritans passed the Old Deluder Satan Act. It's an interesting name, but what it was, it said, we will form schools in all of our towns, and really the only reason to form a school was so that they could teach their children to read so that they could read the Bible. That was the reason for the school. I will use the summation of George Washington to kind of describe the situation at this time. In his farewell address, Washington said, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. But these are not just two ingredients to have for the making of a good society. George Washington, he went on to say in the address, that of these two things, religion and morality, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. According to Washington, political prosperity is dependent on religion and morality. And he took it further and he said, and without religion, you have no morality. Now, lest we think Washington was just speaking in generalities in pluralistic religion, that religion qua religion is all you need, in that same address, let's allow Washington to define for us what he meant by religion. In that same address, he encouraged the nation to be unified and to celebrate not diversity, but to celebrate unity. He said in the context of being patriots, he said, with slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. I think George Washington had a good handle on the society in which he lived. So when he said, you have the same religion, that's important. What was that same religion. It was Christianity. Look at the religious demographics of 1796 when he, wrote, when he made this farewell address. And you will see that the Christian religion was the dominant religion of our nation. So when the word religion was used, you have to understand the historical context that that, in that which it was used. They just did not have a pluralistic understanding that we think we have today. Gives a whole new meaning to Congress shall make no, no law respecting the establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thereof of religion, of Christianity. 
I also find it interesting that Washington also said that whatever may be conceded in the same address, he said, whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education of minds of peculiar structure, that's a very wordy way of saying is, however we educate ourselves, whatever we need to educate ourselves, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. What is he saying? He is saying that there's a lot of things that influence our educated minds, our intellect. There are many things that can be factored into what is to determine to be an educated mind, but one thing that cannot be negotiated, one thing that you must have. And in fact, he says, rational thought, reason, and empirical data, experience, forbid us from coming to any conclusion that morality can be formed without religion. It does not make sense then, and experience has shown it, that this cannot happen. You cannot be moral without religion. You cannot be moral without the Christian religion. That is the national story of the American people. So our nation, with all its faults, with all the warts, slavery, the way we treated the American Indians, with all of that, could you imagine what it would have been like had we not had any religion? And that's what John Adams said when he said, I find that religion, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, I, I don't like religion, but could you imagine if we didn't have it? Well, I think that is what we're seeing today. Any sort of democratic society, to include our constitutional republic, will thrive when governed by biblical principle. But the pendulum will swing just as fast the other way. And it will die once you take the Bible out. It's not just we'll have a bad republic. We will cease to have a republic. The same society is the most vile when it rejects the Bible. So what we are see, about to see as we go into here, as we look at the 20th century, is really what it is. It's a simple extraction of the Bible from society. It's taking the Bible out of the equation, and you have the 20th century. It's the same people, the American people. It's the same messy problems that we had in the 18th, 19th century. We had problems with racism. We had problems with greed. We had problems with all these vices. We had those problems. But the nation in the 20th century had abandoned the scriptures. As, even at minimum, as a moral code. But it abandoned it. So we move to the turn of the 20th century and we have the end of isolationism. So it was around the 20th century that the United States began to reject the Bible wholesale. The rejection can be correlated to the nation's shift from being isolationist to international protector. This shift did not happen overnight, but there are certain events that enabled the gradual shift. And a precursor to the shift was the Spanish-American War in 1898. This was the first major U.S. conflict that resulted in the U.S. gaining control of Cuba, and the Spanish ceding to the U.S. sovereignty over Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines to the United States. And the United States also at this time annexed the independent state of Hawaii. So now the United States has blossomed literally around the globe. 
Between April and August, not a very long span of time, in 1898, Manifest Destiny, which was we believe that the American people should go from sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Manifest Destiny moved beyond sea to shining sea and gave the U.S. holdings literally around the world on this globe. And though the U.S. endeavored to maintain its isolation, it did make random forays into the international scene with things like, as you'll see pictured here, Theodore Roosevelt's global cruise of the Great White Fleet. And his corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which was famously summed up as, if we're going to make it in this world, we're going to speak softly and carry a big stick. President Taft's dollar diplomacy endeavored to secure U.S. commercial interests around the world. And the building of the Panama Canal from 1903 to 1914 made the U.S. a stakeholder in global trade and commerce as everybody trying to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific would now come through the Panama Canal. But for the first decade and a half of the 20th century, the U.S. remained fairly isolated. But the winds were changing, and it ultimately became a full gale when the U.S. was pressured into the Great War of 1917. The Great War, which on this side of history is now known as World War I. For all practical purposes, it permanently thrust the United States onto the international scene. Now, we were only a belligerent in, the, in any official capacity for just a little more than a year or 18 months, from April 1917 to November 1918. But those 18 months had perhaps the single greatest influence in a modern American history. It was World War I that initiated the final days of a, of a word I'm going to introduce to you now called modernity. Not only was it the final days of modernity for the United States, but for the entire world. Perhaps we could even say World War I started hammering the death nail into modernity, which will ultimately be completely hammered in by the conclusion of World War II. I think, and I take the view, that World War I and World War II were really just one war separated by some 20-plus years. World War II was the conclusion of World War I. But I have used a term that moves us from the street definition of modern, which you're probably very familiar with, to mean, you know, contemporary or recent or present, the present time. Instead, I have said that World War I ended modernity, which is a more philosophical word, a description of that time. So let's define this word modernity. Modernity is the historical period that rose in the wake of the Renaissance. It's this age of reason of the 17th century thought and the 18th century enlightenment. During this time, a certain amount of attitudes and practices were developed, and they were built on reason. Rationalism was part of this. Empiricism was part of this. But it was the idea that, hey, I can think. And it's also built on, from the Enlightenment and from the Renaissance, the fact that the world was becoming more, more literate. The Catholic Church had quite the handle on society during the Dark Ages. It wasn't just that the Catholic Church said people couldn't read. It's just the opportunity wasn't available to them. And so people would go to churches and they would sit there and they would just listen to the Mass in Latin. And they would be told what to believe. 
But with the Enlightenment and with the Renaissance, and primarily, I think, with the Reformation, there was this resurgence in education. It was also brought about by the bubonic plague and the Black Death, where now medicine is starting to become onto the scene. Astronomy is being studied. There was so much education taking place, and this introduced to us what we call the modern age. These things really combined with the theological triumphs of the Reformation was foundational then to the formation of the United States. This is when our nation was founded. But World War I changed everything. You'll recall that last week I said that World War I produced 40 million casualties. There were 20 million deaths and 21 million wounded. Only 10 million of those, and I say only, but only 10 million were, were military. The rest were civilians. Of the 30 million civilian casualties, 10 million were civilian deaths. So you lose 10 million of your society. You lose 30 million. You have soldiers. It wasn't uncommon to walk through Paris and see soldiers whose faces were mangled, blind. So many lives lost in the world. Germany and Austria-Hungary lost 16% of its male population. An entire generation of males wiped out in the war. One out of every 10 males in France were killed. Europe literally lost its generation of men. The United States, in its 18 months of action, lost more than 50,000 men. 50,000 of them in combat, but then 116,000 total deaths to combat, disease, and post-combat illness or injury. In 18 months, can you imagine our nation losing 116,000 men? Another 200,000 Americans were wounded. That was quite an investment for a nation who was content to stay on their side of the Atlantic and not be involved in world affairs. But I think Woodrow Wilson said it best when he said, at last the world knows America as the savior of the world. And the United States gained very little from that war. No territory really was added. In fact, at the Paris Peace, or at the Treaty of Versailles, at that conference, at the Versailles Conference, President Woodrow Wilson didn't trust his cabinet and he was the one who was going to uh, uh, talk with the French and the, uh, the Brits and, the, and about the, 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 what was going to happen with the, the Treaty of Versailles. And he got sick and couldn't even be there for him. His 14 points, which he had advocated for, some of them were taken, but in essence was this treaty that really nobody was happy with. In fact, American diplomat and Wilson's friend, they had a falling out, but Edward Mandel House, who was present at the negotiations that resulted in the 1919 Treaty of Versailles and officially ended World War II, wrote in his diary on June 29, 1919, I am leaving Paris after eight fateful months with con conflicting emotions. Looking at the conference in retrospect, there is much to approve and yet much to regret. It is easy to say that what should have been done, but more difficult to have found a way of doing it. 
To those who are saying that the treaty is bad and should never have been made, and that it will involve Europe in infinite difficulties in its enforcement, I feel like admitting it. But it would also say in reply that empires cannot be shattered and new states raised upon their ruins without disturbance. To create new boundaries is to create new troubles. The one follows the other. While I should have preferred a different peace, I doubt very much whether it could have been made. For the ingredients required for such a peace as I would have, ha I would have had were lacking at Paris. House's words were more than prophetic than he realized. Because World War I solved very little of Europe's issues. In fact, it served as a catalyst for many of them. The aftermath of the Great War saw the rise of fascism in Germany, the entrenching of communism in Russia, and ultimately the founding of the Soviet Union. The Great Depression in the United States was just part of the greater worldwide economic depression in Europe. The Great Influenza Pandemic was part, or known as the Spanish Flu, infected one-third of the world's population immediately following the world. That's around, at that time, 500 million people. The deaths of that pandemic are contested, with some saying it was as low as 17 million, while others say it was closer to 100 million who died because of the Spanish flu. Additionally, the old continent of Europe's political boundaries, a remapping that was determined by resources and agendas rather than by ethnic self-determination. The mass casualties of the war were the result of the first real weapons of mass destruction. The proliferation of the machine gun, Poison gas, armored vehicles, aerial warfare, aerial warfare, and heavy artillery left the world grappling for reasons that would explain how humanity could be so brutal and cold-blooded in armed conflict. There was this idea, though, amongst the French that the only way to fight in battle was cavalry. And so in World War I, you had men on horses charging machine guns. It was a brutal time. The world witnessed a taking of ideological sides after the war. And these sides after the war were really just the same version that the, of the war that had just been fought. In 1914, at the start of the war, the great powers were divided into two opposing alliances. The Triple Entente, consisting of France, Russia, and Britain, and the Triple Alliance made of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy. When Austria-Hungary... Hungarian heir to the empire, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated while visiting Sarajevo. Austria-Hungary blamed Serbia and declared war on them. Russia came to Serbia's defense and declared war on Austria-Hungary. Germany then declared war on Russia and Serbia, so France declared war on Germany and her allies. When Germany invaded France by moving through neutral Belgium, Belgium called on Great Britain to honor their commitment to protect their neutrality, thus forcing Great Britain to declare war on Germany. Most of this all happened in one month, the month of August, 1914. But by November of 1914, the Ottoman Empire joined Germany and Austria to form the Central Powers, and Italy shifted to join, the great, join great Britain, France, and Russia, and Serbia as the Allied Powers, and those are the belligerents of that world war. So after the war, these sides were still entrenched. Everyone seemed to blame Germany for the war, though it was a Bosnian Serb who had assassinated the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And Russia, in the middle of the war, completely withdrew. They had been beaten on the Eastern Front by the Germans, and so they withdrew to fight their own revolution, where communist Bolsheviks outlasted the Tsarist 
and the Soviet Union was formed. But in post-World War I politics, communist Russia had a deep mistrust for Germany, especially as communism saw the rise of a rival ideology, fascism, in Germany. Great Britain also blamed Germany for the war, but they found themselves bankrupt and its empire on the brink. They did not necessarily feel threatened by Germany, but because of their economic situation, they had no leverage at Versailles and felt that the United States should have done more to influence the post-war political landscape. In fact, it was Winston Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty, a fairly young man in World War I, who would later blame the United States as somehow complicit in the fracture of Europe in the 1930s and 40s because the U.S., they failed to ratify the Treaty of Versailles back in 1919. And though the Anglo-American tie was still fairly strong because blood is thicker than water, Churchill did not think one of the key re Churchill did think one of the key reasons for the rise of fascism in Germany was in part because the U.S., they were derelict in their duty. In, their, in his, what he believed, they had an international duty. But it was Germany in the interwar years that had the greatest influence on the death of modernity. Now, the Treaty of Versailles put into writing what Germany, that Germany was to be held responsible for World War I. France, who hosted the conference, saw, that the treaty as, saw the treaty as a chance to cripple Germany. France's main objective was to gain as much security as it could from the treaty. And they tried to achieve this by weakening Germany as much as possible, draining it of its financial resources and its arms. And they were success, successful in convincing Great Britain and the U.S. to place reparations on Germany, ultimately driving Germany into bankruptcy and inflation and paving the way then for a hero to emerge amongst the German people. It was this hero that convinced the nation that it was actually the Jews who were to blame for the financial and political crisis. Of course, that hero was Adolf Hitler. And it was Hitler whose systematic, bureaucratic, state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million Jewish men, women, and children by the Nazi regime and its collaboratives, and the murder of an additional 11 million members of other groups introduced to the world to that horrific, terrifying term known as the Holocaust. Now, the Holocaust was the final blow to the age of reason because it was un reasonable. The Holocaust brought to modernity a final and bloody conclusion. The Holocaust was really the ultimate demonstration of humanity's capability when the Bible is extracted from the equation. And though Hitler was the face of the Holocaust, the evil genius of the atrocity, the German people were as complicit. Maybe you've asked yourself, how could an entire nation of civilized people, how could the country that birthed the Reformation, how could they have committed such atrocities and allowed them to be committed? I think the answer is in part due to the rise of another term I'm going to introduce to you right now, the rise of liberal theology or theological liberalism. Theological liberalism is sometimes known as Protestant liberalism. And this is important because its influence has been primarily in nations such as Germany and even in the United States who are predominantly Protestant. If not in their demographics, at least in their worldview. 
We already established how our nation was founded on religion. And according to George Washington, that religion was the Christian religion. I should also verify that it's not just the Christian religion. It is Protestantism. We were not a Catholic nation like you would see in South America or Spain, Portugal, even France. Theological liberalism is a theological movement that was rooted in the early 19th century German Enlightenment, notably in the philosophy of Immanuel Kant and the religious views of Frederick Schleiermacher. It is an attempt to incorporate modern thinking and developments, especially in the sciences, into the Christian faith. Liberalism tends to emphasize ethics over doctrine and experience over scriptural authority. And though it was founded in rationalism, it abandoned rationalism fairly quickly because its emphasis on experience contradicted the rational roots. It was like Descartes' argument on existence that we spoke of in our first lecture. And it morphed into something like this. Remember what his argument was? I think, therefore I am. That was what he said. Here's what theological liberalism said. I think, therefore I am, therefore I feel, therefore I know. Because I exist, I have feelings. And because I can feel, that's where I get my knowledge. So the understanding is that because I can think, I can feel. And because I can feel, I can know things. So my feelings are an important aspect of who I am and what I know. When applied to theology, this comes out in ideas that are very relativistic. My feelings are my feelings, and your feelings are your feelings. They're very pluralistic. Hey, I have feelings, you have feelings, we all have feelings. And non-doctrinal, because of the relativity and the plural aspect of feelings, because I have them, and you have them, and we all have them, nobody can actually be right, because it's just feelings. You feel that way, that's your truth. Germany was a hotbed for this theology. And it was out of this type of liberalism, other movements such as the social gospel, theological feminism, liberation theology, process theology, and critical theory found either a home or at least common ground. So this is the landscape of Europe in the 20th century. And in review, the politics are in upheaval. The confidence in humanity is shaken. And on top of all this, the scriptures have been removed from any consideration for providing a solution to the upheaval. In fact, because the scriptures had such a prominent role in the Reformation and modernity, the scriptures were complicit in the problem of World War I. They were complicit in Hitler's Holocaust. So even they must be the reason for the chaos, so we must reject the scriptures altogether. I'm not arguing that it was not the scriptures. I'm arguing that the neglect of the scriptures allowed 20th century Europe to implode. But let's return to the United States the liberal theology was certainly making inroads into the American church before World War II. The defeat of Germany was a great impetus for getting the theology into mainstream American religion. Because Germany was still considered an icon of Western civilization, it was treated very differently than it was treated after World War II than it was at the conclusion of World War I. This time, after World War II, you remember what they had done in World War I. They blamed Germany for everything and then charged them reparations. This time, the U.S. participated. 
They participated with Russia, Great Britain, and France. And unlike even in the U.S. reconstruction of Japan, which was happening at the same time, where Japan, the U.S. looked at Japan and said, we are going to rebuild you from the ground up. And they westernized Japan. This was very different. Germany was encouraged to retain, even revive their pre-World War I cultural identity. Academics were invited into the international community. This influx of German academics combined with those already in the United States for, who were due to fleeing Hitler's Holocaust flooded American academia with German theological liberalism. And I think this has been one of the single greatest influences on the American church. In post-World War II, the U.S. was still searching for its identity in an increasingly shrinking political world. It has shown it was once again the savior of the world, but what would this look like? This complex combined with mainline denominations inviting academics to lecture in their seminaries resulted in liberal theology finding a foothold in American religiosity. This, I think, is where we can pinpoint the official decline of the American church. It was when the American church sacrificed objective truth as taught by the scriptures and chose rather to elevate subjective feelings of liberal theology as its source for truth. When the church did this, it completely lost its relevance in American culture. Allow me to provide some major events that demonstrate what I'm talking about. Angle versus Vital in 1962 banned prayer from the public schools. Abington versus Shemp outlawed Bible readings or the recitation of the Lord's Prayer from public schools in 1963. The legalization of abortion in Roe v. Wade in 1973. Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015 legalized same-sex marriage. All these landmark decisions were post-World War II. Now, not every Supreme Court decision after World War II aided in the moral decay of society. There were some really good ones. Brown versus Board of Education desegregated, desegregated schools. Miranda versus Arizona required law enforcement to advise suspects of their rights. Loving versus Virginia declared laws against interracial marriage to, declared laws against interracial marriage to be unconstitutional. So not everything was horrible. But the social climate of the nation was tenuous at best. The nation was grappling with how it would address the buildup of nuclear weapons. The Cold War, Korean War, Vietnam War, and the War on Terror would maintain our national attention with no real resolution to any of them. These wars combined with domestic policies that declared so-called wars on drugs, poverty, and crime, domestic revolutions like the sexual revolution and countercultural movement of the 60s, was a time when hippies, drugs, and rock and roll could only be described as, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. And this culturally chaotic time also saw the beginning of the gay rights movement, women's lib movement. And the latter half of the 20th century saw the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., the scourge of AIDS, Watergate, the tragedies at Jonestown and Columbine, the Oklahoma City bombing, and mass shootings punctuated the end of the century. But instead of the church addressing the mayhem and with substantive theology, it responded with a name it and claim it gospel. Have your best life now. The prosperity gospel, easy believism, a music industry that profiteered off so-called worship, infighting in our churches over dress codes, confusion over Bible versions. In short, we 
got tired of fighting the chaos and we formed our own chaos, which of course failed. Church members quit being theologians because pastors quit preaching theology. Preferences were elevated above doctrine. Even our own opinions, our own feelings were taught as truth. The pastor's opinions on modesty, music, and movies was what was being from the pulpit instead of the Word of God. The ping-pong match continued, and the church was the ping-pong ball tossed to and fro. So that was a whirlwind view of the 20th century. And what do we have now? A church that is just waiting to be told what to believe. Congress legislate our morality for us. And this is a tremendous theological issue for us because we are unable to critically think for ourselves in our society. When modernity died in the 20th century, it ushered in a postmodern world. We don't have time to dive into postmodernism. And I'd encourage you to go back and look or listen to the lecture I gave here at church last year at spring of 2021. In those lectures, I defined, or at least I tried to, I tried to define postmodernism as a philosophy. But for this evening, as we conclude, I want to point out that the subjective morality and subjective truth of the 20th century has created a subjective theological relativism that is not simply out there, it's in here. It is embedded in the American church deeper than we might be willing to realize or recognize. There's a disconnect between what we believe and why we believe it and how we should act on our beliefs. This is why the next three lectures you're going to get over the next three Wednesdays is going to be built on the story I just laid out tonight. The postmodern theological relativism of the 20th century are why we do not know how to address, or maybe we simply just aren't addressing them, three major contemporary theological issues that we will address each of them. They are human sexuality, abortion, our civic obligations, and identity politics. So next week, if God created male and female, then how does the Christian biblically respond to, to respond in love to the world's agenda on sex, gender, and marriage? That's the topic for next week. Any thoughts, any questions? Again, I reiterate, the good old days were not that great. In fact, the 20th century was a tough time. And I'm a child of the 20th century. Uh, that was, I, I, I made it in the 70s, and I, uh, that's, where, that's, that's where I grew up, the 80s and the 90s. Uh, you know, I, uh, but we, look, we like to look at this next generation and say, oh, these millennials and their cell phones. And you know who some of the biggest offenders are of cell phones? Us old people. It wasn't that great. But we, we will see. I think what we'll do is we'll biblically lay out how we approach sexuality, how we approach abortion, how we approach our role in our government, and how we approach identity politics. And give you, I think, and I believe, we're going to give you solid biblical reasons for how to talk about those in the public square without compromising your faith. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless us as we leave. I know we've gone a little longer this evening, but Lord, I pray that it was important as we look back at history 
of where we've been, Father, by your grace, we are still allowed to be here. So I pray that we would not waste the time you have given us, but we would redeem it for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.